following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 19th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen, Chad Henney, and the other winners from the NFL's divisional round. We might spare a word for the losers, too. We'll also discuss the Brooklyn Nets' James Harden and Kevin Durant and their absent teammate Kyrie Irving. And finally, we'll review HBO's unauthorized two-part documentary, Tiger, on the rise and fall and rebirth of the golf legend. Apologies for the cliche. Stefan Fatsis is off this week. I'm still in Washington, D.C. I'm still the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. With me, as always, from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and Season 6 coming up, Joel Anderson. Joel, I'm sorry that my internet... It's not cooperating, and you cannot see me this week. Yeah, this is a real change. I usually get to see Josh's face every week, and it's not happening now. So I guess I have to blame the National Guard. Actually, let me blame Antifa like everybody else. I guess Antifa's to blame for, <laughs> for me not seeing Josh. Also joining us this week, we're happy to say, it's Damon Young. Damon is the founder and editor-in-chief of Very Smart Brothers, senior editor at The Root, the author of the excellent memoir, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Damon, great to have you. And if Antifa is the reason that you can't see me, but also is the reason that you're on our show this week, then I think we got to give our hats off to uh, Antifa. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sponsored by Antifa. I appreciate that. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In next weekend's slate of conference championship games, the NFL will potentially roll out a dream quartet of quarterbacks. We've got Tom Brady, he of the six Super Bowl rings and now on the hunt for his first with the Tampa Bay Bucks. There's Aaron Rodgers, who's only won one with the Green Bay Packers, but who is generally acknowledged as one of the best to ever do it. Then you've got the matchup in the AFC, where up-and-comer Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills will face Kansas City, home of the reigning Super Bowl champs, and the presumptive heir to the GOAT, Pat Mahomes. Of course, dreams don't come easy in the NFL. Mahomes is currently in the concussion protocol following a hard hit in the third quarter of the Chiefs win over Cleveland. And neither Brady nor Allen really covered themselves in glory in the divisional round wins last week. Rodgers is pretty much the only one who earned his marquee billing, throwing for 296 yards and two touchdowns in a win over the Rams. But as reductive as it is to the game, it's hard to advance this far without a quarterback at the level of these four. This is a good group, and these should be great games. Now, Josh, I'm sorry to say that your favorite team and favorite quarterback came up short because the 42-year-old Drew Brees looked cooked on Sunday. But do you want to use this opportunity to rightfully complain about how the Saints didn't turn over their offense to Taysom Hill? So I am sorry that you can't see my face right now. (laughs) I just want you to imagine what I'm looking like as I I tell you the following, Joel. Mm. Before I before I answer that question, I want to just want to remind you mm. that old man Ben Roethlisberger threw four interceptions 
<laughs> and the Steelers lost to the Browns. Oh, wow. That the Steelers finished the year winning one of their last six games. Wow. That the Steelers and the Browns split the two games they played during the regular season. And that when you, Joel Anderson, added all this up, your conclusion was that the entire NFL playoff system was unfair <laughs> and does not determine the best team. So now we've got this new set of facts. The Saints beat the Bucks twice in the regular season, including a 38-3 thrashing on November 8th mm. when Drew Brees went 26 for 32 with four touchdowns and no oh, interceptions. Man. So now you want me and our listeners to believe that the same guy who went from nearly perfect to totally unplayable in just two months. Or is it maybe possible that it's hard to come back from 11 broken ribs, a number you have previously stated that you weren't sure even existed in the human body? It's a lot of ribs. I Who knew? knew? <laughs> Plus, the Saints were up by seven. They were driving in the third quarter when Jared, not Drew Brees, Cook fumbled and set Tampa up to tie the game. Is it unfair that Jared Cook fumbled? I wouldn't say that. A Tampa dude did punch the ball out. Is it random? Possibly. Mm -hmm. Did Drew Brees play poorly? Yes. Should he retire? Probably. Hmm. Does the NFL playoff system determine the best team? I will defer to you guys on that one. I'm just here to report the facts. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that there is a there is a thing here. And, and I say this as a 42-year-old man who <laughs> it takes an effort for me to get out of bed in the morning, particularly in the winter. And I think that when you have these old quarterbacks, you can you you just can't discount the importance of weather and how like for Ben Roethlisberger, who who's thirty nine, I guess, but has a one hundred thirty nine year old body, <laughs> performing outdoors in Pittsburgh in the middle of the winter, it just does a thing to you where you everything hurts, your hands are sore, it takes longer to recover, and so the quarterbacks that we the old quarterbacks that we see that are doing well. Tom Brady's in Tampa Bay. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, um, Drew Brees, he came back with the, you know, the thousand broken ribs, but he was in New Orleans. Okay. And so if you, if you have one of these ancient quarterbacks, it's important that you surround them with hot weather because we've, <laughs> we've seen like, even with, even with Peyton Manning, when he was in Denver, I mean, they won the Super Bowl, but he was terrible. <laughs> and he, and, and I guess the year before when he was in the dome, he had thrown like 55 touchdowns. I might be getting my numbers wrong <laughs> because they might be not. No, he was in, my... he was in Denver for the, for the mega touchdowns. Okay, well, he was younger then. He was younger. And also at least you know, a year younger. When you, when you first encountered the cold weather as an old, as an old man, you get that shock to your system. So you're good. You're good for the first year. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then after that shock wears off and you realize, holy fucking shit, I am old. It is cold. I'm not supposed to be here. I need to be on a Barker lounger watching Criminal Minds under a blanket <laughs> instead of out here trying to throw a pass against a pass rush <laughs> and trying to get up after hitting the hitting the turf and it's cold and my fingers are cold. So what you're saying is the Saints are lucky they didn't have to go to Green Bay next week. The Saints are lucky they don't have to go to Green Bay. And Tampa Bay is lucky that they're that they've played the entire season in Tampa Bay. And Tom Brady is smart. He knew that. You know what? I can't deal with this fucking New England winter again if I don't continue to play. I already do the hyperbaric chamber thing. I already do the gluten-free thing. So I need to do the heat thing too in order to extend my career. <laughs> what? See, this is what I think. So you may be onto something with the weather thing, but also as a 42-year-old man, what I would say is that my body is not going to be the same day to day. That you just can't, there's nothing, there's nothing that I can count on physically 
on a day-to-day basis. Like some days I'm going to have good days. Some days I'm going to have bad days. Now, complicate that with coming back from an 11 rib injury, okay? And and I can only imagine that, yes, that Drew Brees was compromised in some sort of way, but this is what this, I mean, that's actually the risk you take. I mean, in addition to the fact that quarterbacks are obviously, you know, playing a very violent game, he's an old man. The Saints said, we're going to roll the dice with this dude this year. And it's not like his performance against the Bucks was totally out of keeping with the way that he played this year. I mean, Drew Brees finished 34th of 35 quarterbacks in average depth of target this year. So if he played bad, if he played poorly, if he wasn't able to complete passes to the boundary this year. That's just in keeping with what he had done all year, good, bad ribs or not, you know? So I I just think that you can't count. That's what he's done the last three years. I mean, he can't throw the ball deep down the field anymore. And so if if you're compromised in that way, Mm -hmm. you can't additionally be compromised by being injured. I mean, he's been getting by on kind of timing and guile for years now, and it has hurt them in the playoffs before. But, you know, I just have a hard time believing that a team that's been good enough to win 49 games in the regular season the last four years with a a noodle-armed quarterback is somehow, you know, the game doesn't change so much in the playoffs. The only thing that's different in the playoffs, Joel, as you've pointed out, is that if you lose a game, you can't play anymore. <laughs> like that's the that's the issue. And maybe that's maybe that's the point is that when you're old, that you're more likely to have that one bad game. Well, yeah, you, you're more likely to have that bad game, and then you also have the accumulated damage of a season behind you. So, like the older the older that's you true. are, the later that's you true. get into the season, the more beat up you are, the more likely that sort of performance is going to happen. And I mean, it happens every year to weak arm old quarterback. And it just happened to Drew Brees. Yeah, sure. The, I mean, the Saints over the course of the season were a better team than the Bucks. But like by the end of the year, is that true? I don't know. I mean, it's so, something to consider is that both the Saints and the Bucks are thirteen and five right now. You know, they've they both won thirteen of eighteen games right now. So how much better are the Saints than the Bucks? Really? I mean, who's who's to say? But I mean, they're roughly equivalent teams, and you know the Bucks just happened to get the better of them that day. I mean, Tom Brady didn't has eleven good ribs for all we know. He probably ended up getting an extra rib. <laughs> the TB twelve factor. Yeah, when he dies, whenever they do an autopsy, like they did with Secretary, and they saw that his heart was like the size of a turkey, we might <laughs> discover that Tom Brady has like seventy two ribs <laughs> or something, but just that extra number of ribs that allows him to breathe at a higher capacity. I, I don't know. Nothing would surprise me. <laughs> the guys who actually got hurt this week were the young quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, who both got concussed and missed, you know, the majority of the second halves of their games. Um, Jackson's Ravens lost, Mahomes' Chiefs won. I mean, Joel, this would not have happened. I mean, Andy Reid said as much after the game that if the concussion protocol wasn't in place, then Mahomes probably would have gone back in the game. Do you think so? Because, I mean, I and I hear that, but for everybody that saw the play that he got hurt on. So he goes down and we're just like, man, he fell down kind of awkward, but nobody thinks that, you know, it was the sort of hit that would keep him out of the game. And then he tried to get up and it was clear that he was unsteady on his feet. So I've been watching football a long time and I know that the way that we treat, you know, head trauma and concussions has changed a lot. But I don't think 
in my lifetime that I've seen a player stumble in the way that Pat Mahomes did and make it back into a game. I'm open to being wrong on that, but I can't remember a guy being like, oh, I'm trying to get up. Oh, God. And then like collapsing uh, in the arms of his teammates and then making it back out there. So um, I don't know. I mean, maybe Andy Reid, you know, he, he he's seen a lot more football than I have, but I can't imagine that in any year, you know, 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020, that a guy who took a hit like that and got up like that would be able to get back in. And so I, I don't know. But I, the thing that I would say about that play too, man, is that <sighs> Pat Mahomes already had a foot injury, dog. You know what I'm saying? Like him keeping the pitch on that speed option was exactly what the Browns wanted, dude. It just opened him up to unnecessary danger. And I know there's a piece of me that's like, well, you don't want to criticize play calling play by play because it's a mosaic and you decide what to do depending on situation, context, all this other stuff. But the play that Pat Mahomes got on, man, it just really, I'm just surprised that they were willing to sacrifice him in that way because it just seemed like, it seemed like there wasn't an option that was going to be so good that it was worth risking him, you know, exposing himself to the defense like that. Yeah, I'm reminded, I guess, at a point that you made last week about the NFL or about the NFL and the playoffs don't necessarily anoint the best team. And, you know, I guess the NBA or any any sport that has a series, you know, has more control over that where you play more games and the best team is the one that usually wins. But, you know, in these games, it is the healthiest team, mm-hmm. the freshest team the team that has the buys and those are the teams that for the most part end up winning. And so a team like uh, a team like Kansas city, which, you know, even though the Steelers were undefeated for most of the season, Kansas city was the clear best team in the NFL for the entire year. Who Buffalo going to come after you, bro. Yeah. Well, no, Kansas city was a clear best team the entire year. <laughs> Buffalo can come and get it. Yeah, it <laughs> I don't matter. It doesn't matter, but they were the clear best team for most of the year and they almost lose that game. Yeah, And they didn't lose because of like a fluky rule that is a good rule. I'm not going to argue against it. But again, it's a circumstance that's unique to football, mm-hmm. not just the NFL, but it's a circumstance that's unique to football. And so I don't know. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is the best. Maybe there should be a separate <laughs> designation for, you know, what this was the best team. Yeah, <laughs> this was the team that actually won. This was the healthiest team. This was the team where the quarterback was able to walk at the end of the season where we didn't have all the top linebackers and receivers on injured reserve. This is the team that actually crossed the finish line. Well, let me ask you all a question. In those games where the young guys got hurt, Pat Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, it actually, and sort of unbelievably in the example of Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs, it didn't really change the outcome of what happened, right? Like, I mean, when Lamar Jackson gets hurt in the game against the Bills, the die was already sort of cast. You know what I mean? Like it, the Ravens did not look like they were going to be competitive or that they were going to come back, even with Lamar playing. And for the Chiefs, I mean, they held on. They were the better team and they held on. And it, it's like maybe the Chiefs win by a few more points if Pat Mahomes is healthy at the end. But, you know, for those of us that want to see good football in the next round, that want to see the better team rewarded, they survived. Even though, you know, it, I mean, it, it was right there for the Browns fans. It was right there for the Browns. And they just, they, you know, they just couldn't cut. They came up short in the end. And the point you're making is that if Taysom Hill had been healthy, then the Saints w- would have won. You know what? No, then. you know what? They had him in, 
if they had him in there as a change of pace? I, I look, man, I, it couldn't have hurt. I mean, the quarterback that threw the best pass in that Saints Bucks game was J- was Jameis Winston. Uh, he threw one pass and it was the best pass of the game. It helps when the guy is running down the field completely wide no, open, okay. but I, I do not dispute that that was the the best uh, pass of the game. Yeah, I think that with the Mahomes situation, it certainly helped that they had a huge lead because they almost blew a nineteen to three, um, you know, a nineteen to three lead. But yeah, we should talk about the play at the end where the Chiefs, instead of punting and instead of you know running a, a quarterback sneak or or handing it off to the running back, throw a kind of sprint out pass with the backup quarterback Kenny to Tyree Kill. Um, it was a play that nobody was expecting. It was a play that clinched the game. Joel, you said I think that you'd never been more surprised by an individual play call than that one. Well, I mean, even Tony Romo was surprised, right? And this is this is how shocking that the play. guy who predicts every play. The guy that predicts every play was shocked. And just for the record, according to Pro Football Reference, it seems to be the only time a team has had the lead with the ball on their own side of the field and thrown it on fourth down in the final 90 seconds of a game. Right. So like I was shocked for a legitimate reason. Most even if the data is on the side of the team going forward on fourth and one or throwing it on fourth and one in that circumstance, it never happens. So that's what was so shocking about it. I don't know, Damon, you you saw it. I mean, I I just I about fell out of my chair. I guess I'm just used to coaches doing like what your boy Tomlin did and just punting it, you know? Well, yeah, <laughs> and and I was about to reference that because it's easy to, you know, armchair quarterback and, you know, to criticize coaches, you know, from where we're sitting. But I do think that there is an epidemic of, and this exists throughout sports, of coaches not trusting their team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we practice this. We have the people on a team who can do this thing. So let's just trust our guys to make a play to just to complete a pass, you know, instead of, in, instead of giving the other team a favor and giving them a the ball, you know what? I have trust in this backup quarterback. I was going to say Chad that, Henney, trust in Chad. Yeah, Henney. I have trust in Chad Henney. <laughs> I have trust in Chad Henney. I remember on Michigan, yeah. you know, I forgot where he was after Michigan, but I remember him by Michigan. <laughs> it was Jack okay. was quarterback. Like he has, every, he has, some, like he has every... some great days at Michigan. Yeah. And, you know, he can complete a pass. So why not just trust your guy to do that? And, and again, Andy Reid gets this, he has his reputation for being somewhat of a maverick in, in, in regards to, you know, NFL coaches. And what it just comes down to is that he trusts his guys. It's like, what's the point of all that practice time of all that fucking, you know, preparation and, you know, they sleep, eat, drink and shit football. If you're not going to trust your athletes, your players to do what you've in, instilled in them for the entire year to do. And, and, and again, it goes back to, you know, the Steelers game with Tomlin. I love, I love Mike. <laughs> I'll, I'll be, you know, if he passes away before, before I do, I'll be a pallbearer at this funeral. If he, <laughs> if I get that privilege, like I, I love Mike Tomlin, but you know, Steelers have auto momentum mm-hmm. in that game two weeks ago. And, you know, fourth down, was it fourth and two? Yeah, fourth and fourth two. and three, something like that at the 50-yard line. You have auto momentum, and you pump the ball, and that that ends the game. Yeah. And it's just a circumstance. It's like, yo, just trust your guys. Trust your guys to make a play. Instead of – and what and what a punt ends up doing, it punts away to trust. Mm-hmm. Where, okay, instead of trusting my guys – to the game two yards here, I'm going to give it to the other team. And now I'm going to, I, now I'm going to trust that we can stop them. 
and trust that we can recreate this this exact same scenario in 10, 10 minutes from now. Because again, best case scenario is they get the ball back and then they have the exact same thing to do. They have the exact same thing, third and two or fourth and two. Mm-hmm. And so why not just front load the trust? Well, I guess here's my thing. And, and Josh, you can tell me, I mean, I guess another thing is that even if you fail, I guess I'm not too concerned that Baker Mayfield is going to beat me. You know, <laughs> I mean, if you, if you fail that, I mean, you know, Andy Reid is saying, well, you know what? I mean, it's still Baker Mayfield on the other side of the ball here. Well, you got to take all of that stuff into consideration. And I think when we talk about risk, there's a risk of kind of flattening out two different things. Like, I think we can all agree that if you're willing to do what the Chiefs did there, you're going to surprise the other team, just like you surprised Tony Romo and Joel Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, and the chance that you'll succeed if you're willing to try it is extremely high. Yeah, The way that we should talk about risk in this case is that in the very small chance that you fail, you'll look really stupid and you will give the other team a short field and a chance to win. But I think it's the, you'll look very stupid. Like if you lose in that way, you are calling all of the attention on yourself and directing all of the blame towards yourself. And you need to have job security to be, to be able or willing yeah. to do that. And you need to, um, like Damon said, just kind of have confidence and trust in your guys. And I think it's really important to explain, um, Peter King had this in his column, that Reed, Pat Mahomes, Chad Henney, and offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy had met before the game and gone through all the plays that they liked on fourth and short. And they had decided on this play that they really liked this play. They were confident in this play. On the sidelines, Reed asked Bieniemy, you ready to roll? Um, Bieniemy said, absolutely. And so then they called it. And it's, so it's back to the thing about trust. Like if you talk about a thing all week, you decide you like it. And then you get in the game and you're like, you know what? I don't have the guts to do it. That'll tell something to your team. If you stick with it in the most pressure-packed situation, that tells them something too. And Joel, I just also wanted to tell that story to make it clear to people that Eric Bien-Aimé, uh is partly, re- at least partly responsible for calling the place. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, everybody, you know, gave Andy Reid the credit, you know, after the game. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, Andy Reid is, is his offense, but he doesn't do that all uh, on his own, and it would be nice if people would recognize the role that Eric Bieniemy plays in calling that offense, and you know, make, taking those sort of shots. Um, we know that he's a part of that, and it would be nice if people recognize it every now and again. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, I want to preface this next segment by saying we recorded it before Kyrie Irving came back to the Brooklyn Nets, which happened on Tuesday. He explained his absence by saying he just needed a pause. And he said that he had personal and family things to deal with without getting into specifics. So we recorded this next conversation before any of that happened. 
On Monday night in Brooklyn, the Nets beat the Milwaukee Bucks 125-123 in the best game of the NBA season so far. Wow. Kevin Durant made the winning three off a pass from his new teammate, James Harden. Harden is averaging uh, 33, 13 assists, and nine boards in the two games since coming to Brooklyn via trade from the Houston Rockets. He seems to have gotten a surge of energy. Uh, seems just like in better spirits, better shape. It's just he he needed that fresh Brooklyn air. Um, anyway, the Nets are now the favorite to win the Eastern Conference, and that is without Kyrie Irving on the floor for the last two weeks because of unspecified, and I quote here, personal issues. Damon, the Nets are now the most fascinating team in the NBA. They're maybe more fascinating than the entire rest of the NBA combined. But let's start with Kyrie, um, who you've written about, thought about a ton. You basically have a PhD in Kyrie Irving. Nobody in the organization or outside of it seems to know when or if he'll be back. What are your thoughts on what's going on with him? So my friends are also aware that I've written about Kyrie extensively, and they consider me like some sort of Kyrie whisperer, <laughs> as if I'm in his inner circle and I can read his mind. And so I've been asked this question repeatedly over the last two weeks, and my answer to them is the same I'm going to give you, is I have no fucking clue <laughs> what is happening with him right now. But I, I will say this, and this is something that I guess, I, who, who wrote the piece for Slate uh, last week about Kyrie? Jack, right? Um, Jack Hamilton? Jack Hamilton. Yeah. Our boy, yeah, Jack, Jack Hamilton. Hamilton. And he, he, he made this point in the piece is that Kyrie kind of represents, I guess, this fundamental, I guess, fundamental difference in how we regard sports and how sports is kind of siloed off from the rest of how we regard society. Because... I do not think that Kyrie Irving should be playing NBA basketball right now if he has some sort of mental health issue or some sort of emotional issue or just isn't feeling up to what's ever happening. But no one should be playing NBA basketball right now. <laughs> I mean, no one should be playing. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's a point that I think that gets neglected in this whole conversation about, you know, about him and about the season is that the season should not be happening. We have games getting canceled, games getting postponed, players, people who have lost their entire family to COVID, like Carl Anthony Towns, now have COVID. And we have no idea what the long-term effects are going to be. I mean, there's all this talk about, yeah, they're athletes and to pop shape and whatever. And it's like, that is actually the reason why they should not be playing because these are people whose bodies are these finely tuned instruments. And if something is off a little bit, you know, like I could deal with, you know, I, I hoop at LA fitness, you know, two, three times a week back when we weren't on outside punishment because of the pandemic, but I could deal with, you know, okay, my lung is my, my one lung isn't working the way it was before <laughs> or, or my blood pressure is a little high or, or something like that. But someone who has to play 82 games against, you know, the best athletes in the world doesn't have those same sort of, you know, doesn't have those same sort of considerations. And so I think the larger issue, you know, with Kyrie is that he is reacting a way that any normal non-athlete person would. Because what we do know is that he was upset about what was happening um, in Washington, the white supremacist insurrection or whatever. And so that happens. And then his best friend on the team misses a whole week because of, you know, the COVID protocol or whatever. And 
I could see that affecting a person. I mean, it's it's not. I know Kyrie has this narrative. There's this narrative of Kyrie being, you know, crazy kooky Kyrie, but that is actually the normal way to react to all this shit that's happening around him. Right. The only sane man in a crazy world is what you're saying. You know, and Kyrie doesn't do himself any favors. You know, and I, as a person who again who who leases property on Kyrie Allen, <laughs> I'm frustrated as a fan because he is actually he was actually having his best season. And if he statistically in the seven games that he's played, he was the best point guard in the NBA this year, averaging 27, seven and six, hasn't missed a foul shot yet this year (laughs) is shooting, you know, 40 from three, 50 from the foul line, real time plus minus. I think he was third in the entire league. And so, you know, a frustrating thing with being, you know, a fan of his basketball game is that all the other shit that surrounds his on-court activity ends up obscuring it. And so, you know, you just want people to focus on the basketball and you can't because he is not playing basketball right now. I agree that on the whole that like playing basketball under these circumstances at this time in our country, it largely seems to be irresponsible, but that's a decision that like, all these professional sports leagues and athletes have made, and they're not going to miss any games because they can't afford to miss any money. So yeah, Kyrie is very high up in the union. They have a CBA. He decided he wanted to play. They want to be out there. They need to be out there. Like the money, they need to make money. If they if the NBA doesn't play, it's a huge problem. So, I mean, I while I sympathize with Kyrie, man, a lot of those guys need that money, dog. They need to be out there. And plus, your careers only last so long. Like, you only have so much time to capitalize and play while you're, you know, capable of doing it. So getting out there and playing is an important thing. But I think the thing for me when I think of this Kyrie situation is that I do think something is going on here. And I think it's telling that the Nets are being very careful about what they do and what they say about Kyrie. So... I know that the dynamics between franchises and superstar players are different now than even they were 20 years ago. But if the Nets thought that there was some malice or serial negligence at play here, I think they would take a harder line stance against them in public, right? And that's not happening here. Like Sean Marks, the GM, Steve Nash, the coach, have been supportive. I saw an interview with Jared Allen back when he was a member of the team, and he spoke almost tenderly about Kyrie, right? And you see that James Harden had no qualms about joining the franchise. Kyrie's there. He wanted to go there. So if there was some sort of like problem or if there was some sort of internal turmoil, the Nets are doing a really good job of pretending that it's not happening. They're just saying, hey, Kyrie needs a break and we're giving it to him. The thing that's so fascinating about him is that, and, and Damon, you wrote about this really well in a piece late last year, is that there's a way in which you can kind of cherry pick different sets of facts about him and tell totally different stories that make him look like the most thoughtful person in sports or like somebody who would be a horrible teammate that you'd never want to spend any time with. I mean, he spent, you know, one and a half million dollars to pay the salaries of WNBA players. He apparently, this just came out, like bought George Floyd's family a house. He's like so committed to the causes that he cares about and was really outspoken, you know, during the bubble about how it might not be responsible for the league to be playing and raised really smart and important points and was kind of smeared for it in the media really unfairly. Then on the other hand, in this recent couple weeks spell, 
like he spotted maskless at a club, like at his sister's birthday party, which seemed like not a smart thing to do. Um, there's a story last year in ESPN um, where Jackie McMullen wrote about how he's unwilling to communicate with coaching staff and his teammates. And the one anecdote that really stuck with me is that he refused to take off his hat during a photo shoot and instructed team staff to Photoshop it out. Damon, is it fair to say that sort of like the ideas or what Kyrie Irving represents, what he believes and what he stands for is great, but maybe like being around him all the time might not be the most fun experience in the world? I mean, that's that's a possibility. That's that's definitely a possibility. Um, I, I think we we also have to remember that Kyrie has had the misfortune, actually, of being caught in the crosshairs of probably the two most passionate and powerful, I guess, parts of NBA fandom and NBA media. On one hand, you have people who are obsessed with LeBron James's legacy and people whose, it seems, entire waking life is to make sure that LeBron is given the proper reverence. And then you have people connected to Boston <laughs> and, and the Boston Celtics and that whole, <laughs> and in all of the sports writers and all of the, you know, the media companies that have, you know, a connection to that. And so Kyrie has been a person who did LeBron wrong and then did the Celtics wrong. And when you do that, it, you have all of these forces, these very powerful forces and very, you know, and, and the people who can construct and repeat narratives coming at you. And LeBron thing, for instance, like the general sentiment behind Kyrie leaving Cleveland and leaving LeBron is that he, you know, he couldn't stand being a number two LeBron. He was unhappy. He wanted to get out. He forced his way out. And that, that is one way of looking at the facts. But you can also step back and say, well, LeBron tried to get him traded. <laughs> like that, that literally happened <laughs> where the Cavs tried to get him traded. There was a trade in the works and there was like a two or three team trade where the Cavs would end up getting Eric Bledsoe and Paul George. Mm -hmm. And this is after Kyrie hits the biggest shot in Cavs history after they win a championship. And also he knows that LeBron wasn't staying in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. It's like, so why would I want to stay in a place? One, you just try to get me traded. And two, you're, you're out of here anyway. And you're going to leave me on this team with fucking Kevin Love and, and, and J.R. Smith in Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. Tristan <laughs> Thompson. Know, so yeah. That, that just part. imagine how annoying Kyrie <laughs> must be to want to trade him after he hit that shot. Well, but, but that part of the, you know, he wanted to get rid of, Le he wanted to get away from LeBron. No, LeBron tried to get him traded. Like that part gets, gets forgotten about when that conversation happens. And even the Celtics that, you know, the first, which is generally regarded as like this, this, this disaster from day one, but his first season in Boston, they were the best team in the league. They, at one point, they won 18 straight games. He was in the MVP conversation. He wasn't a one MVP, but he was one of those in the conversation people. And then he got hurt 60 games into the season. They were already at number one seed and they continued being the number one seed and then go to the, you know, go to the playoffs and, and play well. But it wasn't a complete disaster. It's just that last, that final season of Boston. And then the playoffs were, were terrible mm -hmm. and they lost to a team that was better than them. That was a bad matchup and was better than them. And, and he ends up leaving. And so, again, I, I think that the whole Kyrie situation, it's a, 
I think it, it, it just is a, a, a prime example of the power of narrative where there are, like you were saying, Josh, there were so many different takes that you could, that you could have based on the data in front of you about Kyrie's career, about his, you know, his relationship with teammates. And depending on your perspective, he can be the NBA's greatest villain, which he seems to be right now, or he could be some sort of misunderstood and moody person who just happens to be great at basketball. And I, you know, my sentiment kind of shifts more towards the latter, particularly when you consider the things that he's accused of being, okay, not taking your hat off. Who gives a fuck about that? That's the most important issue for me is you got to take your hat off. (laughs) That's the sort of thing that comes out when people are trying to paint a certain picture of you. But wait, 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 wait. Damn, so let's let's do admit, though, man, like, it does not seem like Kyrie is a great coworker, right? Like, while I have sympathy for the issues that Kyrie is going through right now, the issues that Kyrie are sympathetic to, you know, like the social issues that he is interested in and supports. Like, I'm with him on all that stuff. But in terms of, hey, man, show up, be on time, be accountable, like, you know, just be here and, like, don't start no shit. It just doesn't kind of seem like that is, you know, something that he is really good at. You mentioned the Cavs, that, like, you know, Bron tried to get rid of him. Well, you know, it's not like the Cavs suffered too much after he left. Like, they went to the finals again and lost the next year, right? He went to Boston that first year where he was hurt. And then, you know, the, the young boys, you know, Tatum and Brown went to the conference finals, lost to LeBron and them, and then they ran it back the next year, and they were worse, right? Then he leaves, and the Celtics were good again. You know, they were still, you know, well, I think they still lost in the semis. Did they live in? I think they lost in the conference semis. They lost to Miami. They lost to Miami. And they got by a Raptors team that was bad. Yeah. And so that part of it, I think, again, you could just look at the facts, and you could have that takeaway. But again, even thinking about that Celtic season, when, you know, they didn't live up to expectations, but yeah, Kyrie was a part of that season. So was Gordon Haywood, Mm -hmm. who was terrible that year but got shoehorned back into the start lineup, you know, and Jalen Brown was coming off the bench at the beginning of that season, you know, to make room for Haywood. You had Terry Rozier doing a season-long pout about playing time. He had Marcus Morris on that team, too, who was literally getting the fights on the sideline. So you had just a volatile mix, and Kyrie is not like a leader. He's not the sort of person that's going to put, you know, that is going to put a cap on all of that and just tell the guys, like, you know what, Let's rally around. He's not that type of guy. But doesn't but doesn't it seem like he wants to be that guy though, right? Like, excuse me. He wanted to be the number one guy on a a team, right? I I mean, I I do think that there. No, no. Actually, when he when he requested to leave Cleveland, his where he wanted to go was San Antonio. (laughs) That that was his number one choice. You do not choose to go to San Antonio when you're asking to leave Cleveland. (laughs) If you want to be like, he would have, he would like, he would have been like, you know, send me to Phoenix, send me to Sacramento, send me to Minnesota, send me, send me to the Knicks. He wanted you to think that he wanted to go to San Antonio. Yeah. But (laughs) his, his choice when he was, when he was traded was to go to San Antonio. And and again, this is, this is, this is a thing that is a verified thing where he wanted to be a part 
of a system, Mm -mm. you know, with a great coach. Let me end it by framing things this way. I'm curious for your response to this, Joel. Well, first of all, the Celtics lost to the Heat in the conference finals last year. So let's give them some credit for making the conference finals. But think about Kyrie versus Harden. Harden, at his most disruptive, like when he was in Houston, and was basically conducting a sit-down strike on the court in the last few games <laughs> before he left. It was more dis- more disruptive than Kyrie has ever been. But when Harden is, like, all there and wants to play, like, that guy is all about basketball, like, all about being on the court. And some of this is just injuries and luck, although Kyrie does to seem like um, he has kind of a fragile body. But Kyrie Irving has never played more than 75 games in a season. He's played as many as 65 games just four times in nine seasons. Harden has played more than 75 games five times, and he's played more than 65 in 10 of his 11 seasons. So Harden is at once, and in my view, more disruptive, but also more reliable. And and getting back to something that Damon said, it just feel, feels like Harden is like kind of a little nutty in the ways that are actually beneficial to a, <laughs> to a basketball team. Whereas Kyrie's quirks are like the quirks that, you know, he's more of like a solo artist and more like maybe not a great coworker. Like he's a guy that, you know, his particular personality or viewpoint are maybe not as conducive to being in the NBA. Well, Josh, I want to say really quickly, too, is like I think that we can separate the quirkiness from injury because he it's true i think the biggest the biggest issue i think with Kyrie's career forget about the quirkiness forget about the locker room stuff is that he hasn't been able to stay healthy for a long stretch of time where he's had all these injuries it even goes back to his time at duke where you know he he injures parts of his body that didn't even know existed (laughs) (laughs) okay and 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 so that has been a recurring theme for him throughout his career and i think that that when he is not injured then yeah you you take what he gives you. You take the 27 points a game, the high assists, the low, he does not turn a ball over. He like he for a person who has the sort of reputation for his game that he has, he never turns a ball over. Um, so you take that. And when he is playing, when he is actually on the court, he is good. This is this time right now, these last two weeks have been the only stretch of his career where he has been out and it wasn't injury related. Because when he plays, he plays well. And that has been a thing. And so, but to compare him to Harden, Harden is indestructible. Harden is his game. He doesn't just have like a savant game. He has savant's body. Like, I don't know how someone with that body <laughs> is able to produce the way he does and also not miss any time. Because he either never gets injured or he's able to play with injury in a way that few people in professional sports history have been able to. Because, yeah, he is... He, he is extremely reliable. And that's that's one of the greatest things about his game is that he just either doesn't get hurt or he's able to play through it in a way that few other players are. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about whether star athletes 
should get the COVID vaccine early, could help with marketing the vaccine, and start a class war. Win-win, baby. To hear a slightly more robust conversation on this subject, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. On the first episode of the Hang Up and Listen podcast, which was way back on July 6th, 2009, I talked about going to see a golf tournament here in the D.C. area. It was the first and only golf tournament I've ever been to. The only reason I went is because Tiger Woods was playing in it. Tiger won that weekend. I talked about how incredible it was to see him up close, to watch tens of thousands of people watching him, and have him perform better than anyone ever had under all that scrutiny and pressure. A little more than four months after that, Tiger crashed his car into a fire hydrant, and all of his affairs and the photos and the sexts, they all got spilled out into the world. HBO's two-part documentary, a three-hour documentary, Tiger covers all of that, the success and the scandal, Tiger's complicated relationship with his father, Earl, and his relationship with race. Joel, it's a legitimately epic story, crazy highs and lows, and a tortured, probably emotionally stunted hero at the center of it. What did you think of how this documentary told Tiger Woods' story and did it do that story justice? It's funny you mentioned those texts, uh, the sext, by the way, because I convinced my wife to watch it with me, Janae, and uh, we got to the end of it. She was like, "Hey, I thought we're, we're I thought we were going to cover the text, and that didn't come up." So I, she was <laughs> she was very disappointed about that. But so to me, the documentary felt like an awful lot like a this really sweeping redemption story. But in light of like the last few years, it just seems absurd that Tiger would have ever needed to be redeemed. So like it's. Like, watching that documentary, it was like this quaint little reminder of our lives before everyone realized that 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 sort of, like, public-facing morality is all a farce. And I think we're a lot more cynical about our celebrities and athletes now. And in in some ways, that's good, because I don't think Tiger or anyone else should have to go through what he did. And you see some of that in the documentary. Like, because, like, a lot of people, for instance... I'm retroactively offended by the idea that Tiger would hold a press conference to address his infidelity, which was really meant at reassuring his corporate partners, right? Like, even in that press conference, he apologized to them before he did his wife and family. But, like, the scene in the documentary that highlights this the most and sort of left the biggest impression on me was that master's press conference with Augusta National Chairman Billy Payne, who, you know, chastised Tiger for his failures. He said something like, It's not simply the degree of his conduct that is so egregious here. It is the fact that he disappointed all of us, and most importantly, our kids and our grandkids. Our hero did not live up to the expectations of the role model we saw for our children. And, like, those comments are outrageous and out of line, and they really don't hold up to scrutiny given what he said about President Trump in 2017, when sports writer Christine Brennan asked him about Trump's own comments about women and his very close association with golf, and Payne said... I'm not the one to judge how Trump's other remarks may have some influence on the game of golf, which is where my interest level resides exclusively. So, like, just in that short amount of time, we see that all that morality play stuff is bullshit. And it just kind of read to me like this public whipping of a very bad little black boy who disappointed us. And so the documentary really didn't comment on that piece of it, but, like, that's what I took from it. I was like, oh... Everything that we thought, like these supposed hard lows and, you know, the, these failures that Tiger really had, I'm like, come on, really? It was it, like in retrospect, it just seemed all like totally silly to me. It felt surreal watching that documentary because and, and it was I was trying to 
figuring out exactly why in, in the days after while I was thinking about it. And, and I think what made it surreal in a way that The Last Dance, for instance, wasn't is that The Last Dance was about, you know, obviously Michael Jordan's career, but his career is over. It's done. He's done playing. And Tiger Woods is still out there playing. And so we have this documentary about a person who is actually still in his still in the middle of his career. Now, he's not in the prime anymore, but it just felt like almost like a like like a eulogy in, in some capacity for a person who is still living. Mm. And I don't know if I've ever seen that where, you know, yeah, I've seen documentaries, sports documentaries about like a specific team, like the Fab Five, for instance, or Iverson, you know, his stretch in Virginia when he had the legal issue. But in terms of a, a, a documentary about a career that is actually literally still happening, I don't know what you're supposed to take from that because documentaries are supposed to be these encapsulating narrative you know, driven things that exist at the end of someone's career. And so I guess when Tiger's career ends, is this documentary going to be a part of the next documentary about him? Hmm. Right. I thought it was not particularly artfully done. Like, I don't think this was a great piece of filmmaking, but it was useful as a reminder of the things that Tiger has done and gone through and how he's been talked about and covered. And Joel, the point that you picked out was the one that stood out to me as well, that moralizing statement from a chairman of a golf club that had um, traditionally not allowed Black members or Black players at the tournament. It's just kind of remarkable sanctimony. And I I think maybe more than, than you did, I think that that was included in the doc to make Billy Payne and the Masters look as bad as they actually were. Like, you don't put that in there if you don't want people to have the reaction that we had, in in my view. Okay. But I'm just trying to think back to my own response to that press conference the Tiger held to apologize for his affairs, which is just a bizarre statement to make, like, press conference to apologize for your affairs, just like the fact that that happened. Um, and maybe, it w- maybe I would have felt differently now. But back then, and I wrote about it at the time, the thing that struck me about it, Joel, was how phony Tiger seemed. Um, And he had four kind of financial gain. And as you alluded to, four kind of corporate reasons and corporate interests, he had cultivated this image of being a squeaky clean family man and kind of exploited that image. And the way that he talked about it, at the um, press conference and the way that he hugged his mom mm-hmm. and stage managed and like refused to take questions. Like, okay, don't have the press conference, but if you do, just the way that he did it seemed like, you know, the exact opposite of, of introspective and just seemed more about protecting Tiger, the brand. And that's just a conflict that has come up throughout his life and also in this documentary is like, who is the, like, is there a real person there or, is it just this like robotic dude who's been trained to be this particular way since birth? See, that's a really interesting point because I wanted to ask you all this. Like, do you feel that you know anything more about Tiger as a person at the end of this? I felt like it was more commentary on the way that we saw him and the way that he was covered. But I even the people that they interviewed in his life that were ostensibly close to him, it just didn't seem like they knew very much about the guy. Well, these were all people that had been exiled from his life. And mm-hmm. this was not authorized. Tiger's agent came out and said, like, this is like horrible and salacious, just like the book that it was based on. But like, Damon, imagine a documentary <laughs> about your life where the talking heads are 
the girlfriend that hates you. Right. They um, interview your old ex, all your exes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if if that happens and they all just say, "Hey, this guy was just really obsessed with writing." I was like, "Okay. Yeah. I'll take it." <laughs> I'll, I'll th- that's the worst thing you have to say. About he, just, me. <laughs> he just really likes Kyrie Irving. Yeah, right. He really loved Kyrie and he just loved to write things. So, yeah, I, I saw the the, you know, the comment that this was like a salacious thing, but I'm watching it. And I think that, you know, a thing like this exists for people who are not diehards. Um, for like your your just regular HBO person who watches TV and watches documentaries, because there were no new revelations mm-hmm. from this. And I'm not even a person who I'm not even a person who knows a whole lot about Tiger. Yeah. Or who has followed his career to that capacity, but there were no new revelations in this documentary. It's what like, about the mean letter that he wrote his first girlfriend? Oh god. Yeah, I mean, uh, okay. So <laughs> he is he's obsessed with golf. He treated he treated his ex when he was twenty one or twenty two, however old he was, the same way a lot of twenty one or twenty year old twenty two year olds I mean, who gets letters? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least he wrote a letter. <laughs> okay, I, he didn't just ghost. Right, right. <laughs> he didn't just miss a date, and then the next time she sees him, it's on TV. So he did write a letter, right. with good handwriting too. <laughs> um, and and so I just, I don't know. I did not learn anything. My wife was watching it with me. She learned some stuff about him, but there was nothing in this that was salacious, that was sensationalistic, that was anything to be. If I'm Tiger, I'm like, okay, this this shows that I'm obsessed with golf, and then I had some affairs, and then. People were weird around me, and I just want to play golf and be left alone. Well, I think that that goes to Josh's point, um, where you mentioned that Tiger seems phony, and it could be that like he has put this wall up around himself in a way so that people don't actually get to know who he is. That we don't actually get that there's no that there's not a chance for any authenticity because. He even Earl Woods. I mean, he built him up. He wanted. He said he was going to be as great as Nelson Mandela and all these other, you know, you know, legends. You know, Gandhi, Gandhi, Gandhi. Yeah, Gandhi. yeah right. And so Jesus. I mean, like they, they were always focused. <laughs> right, right. They were always focused on building him in in a public image, but not necessarily uh, giving us a window into like his internal being, which is fine. I mean, I don't think that we need to know anything. I don't know anything about Michael Jordan. I didn't know, I didn't know much about Kobe. I don't know really about like LeBron. I mean, they want to sell you the artifice of intimacy with these celebrities and athletes, but it's just not possible. And so we see it as phoniness, but like, that is just, that is them keeping their distance. But the thing about Tiger that was interesting to me is that it seemed that the people close to him didn't actually get close to him either. I mean, Steve Williams sitting here talking about, yo, uh, I didn't, you know, I, I never thought that Tiger would never call me back again. Or we were buddies. And then, but then they talked to Rachel Ucatel, who was like, oh, when Tiger spent time with me, he could really be himself. And finally, you know, he could really, you know, let his guard down. And then she gets, you know, it just it just felt like all these people had moments and and moments with Tiger, but that they never actually got close to him. And I and maybe that's strategic on his part, or maybe it's just not. He's just a guy that you can't get close to. And to both of your points, you know, I think what we're reading as inauthenticity is actually just a lack of anything there. Mm-hmm. Like maybe there is nothing really to get closer to, and we assume that he is a lot more complicated than he actually is. And he, everything we know about him is that he eats and sleeps golf and he likes blondes. 
And, and 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 that is and maybe that is it. Hey, Mindy Lawton wasn't blonde. Mindy Lawton was the, yeah. the Perkins waitress okay. wasn't blonde. You know. What I'm saying? So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, he likes blonde and blonde adjacent. Um, and maybe that's just it with him. Maybe there's like there's nothing else there, and we're trying to find these I don't know these nuggets of personality or you know something to kind of anchor us to to pull us into his orbit to, to see, you know, what else is there. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that there's anything else. Yeah. I do have sympathy for him though, because he was never allowed to be a person. Like even his dad transformed him into this icon, like to have even your own family talk about you in the way that like an, ins- the most insane fan yeah. would describe you. Mm-hmm. That has to warp you from a very early age. I mean, he's on the Mike Douglas show you know from when he's two i mean the most telling interview moment and the whole thing is like when he's asked by a sportscaster and he must have been two years old to like do you like to play golf and tiger goes i want a poo poo like (laughs) this was a this was a guy who you know that was that was an authentic answer but he's like asked to perform and to be this person to be this like you know untouchable legendary golf guy from the time he could talk and so he was never able to develop as a normal person and he did have the eyes of everyone in the world on him and so it's it's hard not to you know it's hard not to for me have sympathy for somebody who grew up in that way i hear you josh but wait a minute hold on like first of all was earl so with the understanding that, no, he did not become Gandhi, he did not become Mandela, right? But was Earl Woods wrong about the impact that Tiger would make in golf and everything else? And 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 given that, like, what is normal? You know what I mean? Like, what is, you? I mean, Earl Woods trained and built the greatest golfer ever, which was his goal, and it seems to be something that Tiger enjoys. And yes, he may be stunted in some other ways, but what is actually normal? You know, because there's a lot of people that don't get yeah. to be billionaires and like they don't get to do what they love and they also don't deter, you know, develop an internal sense of self or, you know, an authentic bearing. You know what I mean? So I guess like that's true. I mean, I guess what I would say is that like Tiger became probably the greatest golfer ever, even if he doesn't beat Jack Nicholas's records, but he didn't really change the world or even change the game of golf. I mean, if you look at golf now, like the faces are just as, you know, white as they've always been. He didn't change golf the way that the Williams sisters changed tennis. That's not necessarily, it's not at all on him, I would say, but like Earl was successful in creating this amazing, beyond amazing golfer. But if you look at the world now, 25 years later, is the world really all that different because of Tiger Woods and his role in it? His change wasn't in the demographic or in the diversity, but he definitely changed the way golf is played. Mm-hmm. Where, like, even if you look at how those guys are built mm-hmm. now, these are athletes. I mean, they were all, they've always been athletes, right? But when Tiger started, hey, I'm, I'm going to lift, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have abs, I'm going to be on the cover of men's health. When, when he brought that to golf, and he looked and he saw the golfers before and you see the golfers now, there's like, you know what, in order to compete, we need to be in shape too. We need <laughs> to have, we need to be able to twerk. We need to. So I do think that he, you know, I think the change that Tiger, that Tiger brought to golf was more of a, 
more more of how the way the game is played and the way people prepare, which is which is an important change. But the but the but the larger like that's world, not Gandhi, Damon. Yeah, it's not Gandhi. It's not Gandhi. But he did. He did change the game. I just had to think of this very low bar change that goes back to the Last Dance, and it's like these two these two dudes, like Michael Jordan, changed his game and became dominant by deciding to lift weights, and like Tiger Woods changed golf by deciding to do push ups. It's like, oh, nobody <laughs> else thought to like do this shit previous. <laughs> what? <laughs> my dad tells a story about, or my dad played college ball, and they would have double hitters sometimes with NBA teams or whatever. So they play one game, then the NBA team play the next game, and you remember sharing a locker room, but I guess the Cincinnati Royals and how surprised he was at halftime when he would come, he came into the locker room and he saw them all drinking beer and smoking <laughs> cigarettes at halftime of an NBA game. Right. And my dad, my dad's like, not like 90. I mean, he's 72 years old. So this wasn't that long ago. Right. All these dudes were Phil Mickelson. The Cincinnati Royals yeah, were Phil Mickelson, right? like thing. <laughs> Damon Young, thank you so much for sharing stories of beer in the locker room and for being on the show. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man, for real. Oh, no, thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now it is time for Afterballs. And Joel, you mentioned, uh, Janae, your wife, being disappointed that there was not more sexting in the Tiger doc? Yes. <laughs> she would have, that's, I think that's what she actually was hanging in for, and it, it never came up. So, HBO, you fooled us. So, I don't want to disappoint Janae. So, I, I think we should honor in this week's Afterballs uh, Jocelyn James, who uh, is a porn star who released text messages that she received from Tiger Woods uh, on the website sextingjoslynjames.com. You got to appreciate wow. the nose for business there, Joel. Yeah, I mean, people did use their own websites back then. Didn't Tiger make an announcement on his website back then too? It was a very quaint era. Yeah, Tiger would only release statements on his website. Part of the reason people were upset with him, refused to take questions from the press, all just driven by an interest in web, web traffic. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... Sexting Jocelyn James. Uh, you know what? I might disappoint Janae because this is a family program. I'm not going to read any uh, of Tiger's alleged messages. Oh. Um, actually, I'll just read one. Yeah, just please. I have to leave for an appearance at 4.30, but I will be back at 7.30 for dinner and lots of dessert with you. That's kind of sweet. Oh, okay. I mean, I assume he meant like, you know, like some tiramisu or something like that. <laughs> I actually did a piece for Slate back then. We we were very strong on the uh, the Tiger Beat in uh, 2009, <laughs> 2010, where I filled in the other half of Tiger's 
uh, sex with Jocelyn James. We can we can release that on our show notes. But but basically making the point that all of Jocelyn's messages were totally innocuous. And anyway, it's probably funnier. I hope funnier to read than to describe. But I'm going to stop talking now. Joel, what is your Jocelyn James? Well, I was hoping we could get more into your sexting Mad Libs, but uh, and I I should clarify for the record to Jan- I don't know who Jocelyn James is, Janae. But um, anyway, <laughs> so my Jocelyn James. It's a tough time to be a Houston sports fan. Everyone hates the Astros. Deshaun Watson wants off of the Texans. And as we discussed earlier, the Rockets just traded away their second best player in franchise history, granting James Harden his wish to leave their sinking ship. Friend and friend of the show, Jessica Luther, sent me a piece from Texas Monthly's Dan Solomon that summed up the collective misery. It was headlined, Houston is America's saddest sports city, part infinity. And who's to say? Maybe that's hyperbole, but it's clear that Houston sports fans could use a little hope. Unfortunately, I don't have much hope to offer. But I did learn more about the time the Rockets almost traded away their best player in franchise history, which we now know would have been a disaster. So let's go back to February 1992. The Rockets had fired head coach Don Chaney and replaced him with former player and longtime assistant Rudy Tomjanovich. Houston was just a 500 team that year, and on its way to missing the playoffs for the first time in seven years. That best player, Akeem Olajuwon, was carrying a heavy burden on this particular team, and he was breaking down physically. He had missed a couple weeks earlier in the season with an irregular heartbeat, and in March, he said his hamstring wasn't doing too great. Olajuwon missed a game against Seattle on March 19th of that year. But when Dream said his hamstring wasn't healed and that he couldn't go on March 21st, two days later, against Sacramento... The Rockets accused him of faking it. Specifically, general manager Steve Patterson said Olajuwon was faking it as a contract negotiation tactic, and they suspended him for five games, a penalty later reduced to three. As you might expect, Dream wasn't too happy with the Rockets. He told the media, I have my track record, and it speaks for itself. Management has its track record that speaks for itself, too. That obviously wasn't meant to be a compliment, and he wasn't wrong. Not long after owner Charlie Thomas bought the Rockets in 1982, he traded away MVP Moses Malone to Philadelphia rather than sign him to a new contract. The Rockets were so bad the next couple of years that the NBA changed the draft to a lottery system after Houston won the number one overall pick in consecutive years. The owner, Charlie Thomas, did little to improve the team around his stars, Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson, and the Rockets gradually fell apart, leaving Olajuwon without much help. Dream said he had no faith in the Rockets' front office, specifically that Patterson, the GM, didn't know what he is doing, which had some truth to it if you followed Patterson's career in the 30 years since. An example, here's a headline from an ESPN.com story in 2015 covering his two-year stint as the athletic director at the University of Texas. He just put us through hell. So yeah, Dream had a point. He also said that he wanted a trade. The fans should not look at the foolishness of management, Elijah once said. They have defamed me, but I have my obligation. I have a contract. People who know me know what kind of person I am. Somebody had to show some class. And I mean, Dream, this, he just is this great ether at the front office. Like, he had no respect for him. And he just dismissed them with so much, I mean, so much gravitas. It was just amazing. But, but anyway... Dream went right back to being Dream in the final 10 games of that season, averaging 23 points and 12 rebounds a game. But he kept up his trade demands through the offseason, and the Rockets reportedly considered deals with the Clippers and the Heat. The Heat package would have potentially fetched Roni Cycli, 
Glenn Rice and Steve Smith. That's not bad, right? The Clippers and the Rockets talked about swapping Dream for Danny Manning and Lloyd Vaught, among other players. But one holdup on that trade, according to the Houston Chronicle, one source in L.A. said the Clippers would rather have a 22-year-old Stanley Roberts than Elijah one, who will be 30 this season. And if you ever wanted an example of why the Clippers were a league punchline for so long, there you go. The Rockets didn't reach a deal with either team, but the Chronicle reported that offseason that Dream being dealt was as close to a sure thing as there is. Predictably, Dream was still mad when he reported for training camp in October. Maybe even madder. He said, I don't want to get down in the mud with this team, but in my country, which was Nigeria, there is an old saying that staying silent is the best answer for fools. Charlie Thomas, the Rockets' owner, has been a coward standing behind the organization and letting Steve Patterson do the dirty work. If you were me, would you want to be here? Of course not. They've insulted my integrity. But I know that ultimately the truth will come out. I think it is better for the city if the new owner is interested in winning. It's so obvious that Charlie Thomas's only interest is to sell the club and make money. Olajuwon was still on the team for its season opening two-game series against Seattle and Japan that year. And it was on that 14-hour flight to Japan that Olajuwon rebuilt his relationship with Charlie Thomas. It was the first time they had talked since Olajuwon publicly called him a coward. And you know what? Dream stuck around and had the best season of his career to that point, averaging career best of 26 points and three and a half assists to go along with 13 rebounds and four blocks. By March, the Rockets had offered him a new $26 million extension that he accepted. I'm glad this is over with, he said. And that's quite a damn turnaround. Dream finished second to Charles Barkley for MVP that season and led the Rockets to a then-franchise-best 55 wins and its first playoff series win in six years. That season became the foundation of a two-year championship run known as Clutch City that started the very next season. See, Houston? Sometimes it's possible to walk back from the ledge. You really can make it work with a belligerent superstar. And if Charlie Thomas did nothing else in his time as the Rockets owner, he stuck to his guns and turned down bad deals and secured the foundation for the only championships I ever experienced as a sports fan. And that seems worth honoring especially after Thomas died Friday at the age of 89. As it turns out, Dream was also right about Thomas wanting to sell the Rockets, too. For more than a year, Thomas had entertained a number of offers for the Rockets, including one from a group that included MC Hammer and Evander Holyfield, and another guy who also later went bankrupt. I'm not making that up. But in May of 1993, about a month after the season, Thomas sold the team for about $85 million to a Florida businessman named Les Alexander. Thomas a born salesman and a car dealership guy, knew a pretty good deal when he saw one. He'd bought the Rockets for just $10 million just 11 years before. And the guy whose offer Alexander had to beat to buy the team from Thomas? A local restaurateur and minority Rockets owner named Tillman Fertitta. That's the guy who just traded James Harden. And unfortunately, I don't have anything nice to say about him. So Joel, I just looked it up. Akeem Olajuwon is not on cameo. Oh. But how much how much would you be willing to pay to get oh, like man. a polite ethering from a team <laughs> on cameo? Oh man, I would pay and if he wants to do this, like somebody set it up. I would I I, I do think Daryl Morey listens to this show by the way. I don't I don't I don't want to talk out of turn, but maybe he can get get this to a dream, but I would pay $1000. I mean, if he would just if he would call people foolish, 
you know, if I could just get him <laughs> to call my enemies foolish, I would. I, that seems like an experience I'd be willing to pay a thousand dollars for. When Akeem would look at like the long list of enemies that you sent him, he might ratchet up the price. But you know, we can <laughs> we can get to that when we get to it. Somebody get on this. I think he lives in Jordan now. The country, not. I mean, there's only one Jordan you can live in. I assume, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so if somebody can get make that happen, I would love to set it up. All right. In the meantime, that is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Damon Young for sitting in for Stefan Fatsis this week. For Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Stay safe, DC. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.